um, as it unfolds through the ups and downs. Let's recap some of his journey so far. In chapter 12, we see that Abraham leaves everything that he knows to follow the Lord to this land that is unknown to him. And then we see directly right after God promises land, God promises him offspring, out of the fear of man, Abraham decides to say that his wife is actually his sister to protect himself from potential danger. And then in chapter 14, we see that Abraham has to go and rescue Lot and then is blessed by Melchizedek. It's this blessing, continual blessing. And in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham once again, promising this land and this offspring. Again, the continuation of saying, this will come to pass. Yet in chapter 16, doubting God's promise of a son, Abraham sleeps with one of his servants, Hagar, and together Ishmael is born. In chapter 18 through 19, we see Abraham goes to the Lord and intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah and is able to protect Lot and pull him out of those cities. And we see in chapter 20 that old habits die hard. And once again, Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister out of fear of man. And then in chapter 21 and 22, Sarah finally has Isaac, the son of promise. And then God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac up to the top of this hill and and sacrifice him. Sacrifice the son of promise. And we see in that moment that Abraham's willing to sacrifice his son. But at at that moment right before, God says, no, I have a replacement. And there was a ram in the bushes. The Lord provided a substitute. See, Abraham's experienced quite a lot in these last 13 chapters, what we've been walking through over the last two months. It's really been a roller coaster for Abraham through the ups and downs. Abraham's had ginormous acts of faith littered with massive failures and doubts about who God is. Yet in the midst of these ups and downs, in the midst of the roller coasters that is life, there's been one constant. And that constant is God, the faithful one. The one who, when he says something, we know it'll come to pass the God who stays true to his promises. And we're going to see in today's text, this is really the bookends of two stories. It's the bookends of the life of Abraham as we see him pass away. And it's really the beginning of Isaac and Rebekah and this generation to come. You see, these three chapters really serve as transitionary chapters within the book of Genesis. We see the death of Sarah, the death of Abraham, and the death of Ishmael, and the sorrow and pain of that. Yet we also see the rejoicing in the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. And as we've experienced the faithfulness of God thus far in Genesis, that theme is highlighted in these chapters. We ultimately get to see that God is faithful to keep his promises time and time again. In the highs of life and in the lows of life, God is faithful. God does not change. His promises remain the same. And each of these stories is able to address that truth in small, specific ways. 
And so we're going to unpack each of these stories in succession. It's going to be a lot of storytelling as we get to walk through three chapters over a hundred verses of the Bible, really looking at God and his faithfulness in the midst of his promises to his people. And then at the end, we're going to address, okay, what does this mean for us? What do stories that happened thousands of years ago actually mean for you and me in 2018 in the city of Corvallis? Ultimately, we're asking the question of how do we respond to the promises of God? So we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to get going. And due to the length of the text, it's going to be some some reading of the text as well as being able to paraphrase and tell you guys the story as we go along. So as I said, it's three different stories. Story number one is chapter 23. Sarah dies and her tomb is purchased. So we enter today's text in a place of sorrow. Sarah, Abraham's beloved wife, has died at the ripe old age of 127. And so we see Abraham spending time mourning and weeping for his wife. Yet after he mourns and weeps for his wife, he comes down to the realization that he has much practical needs at hand. He needs to find a place to bury his wife, Sarah. And again, we know Abraham is not in the land that he owns anything, so he needs to go find a plot to be able to bury his wife. And so Abraham goes to the Hittites. And picking up in verse 4, Abraham is speaking to them. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. He says, give me property among you for a burying place. And the Hittites answer Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So he gets a pretty good response right off the bat. They're saying, hey, you name the land, we'll give it to you. And Abraham knows exactly what piece of land he wants. And so they connect him with Ephron, the owner of the land. And then they begin this negotiating process, which would have been very similar or very typical of that day and age, where the owner of the land would go to the potential buyer and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you the land for free. Knowing that the buyer would say, no, no, I, can't, I cannot accept that type of gift. And then the seller would give an exorbitant price, thus the bargaining begin. <clears throat> And so that's exactly what happens. Ephron comes to Abraham and says, hey, take this land from me. It's yours to have. And Abraham, again, being a man of God, says, no, I'm not going to just take that from you. Like, I want to purchase it. And so 400 shekels of silver is the price, which, again, would be an absurd amount of money in that day. And how does Abraham respond? Without trying to negotiate at all, just pulls out his pouch, counts out 400 shekels of silver, and gives it to the man. So Abraham purchases this land outright and is able to bury his wife. That's the end of the chapter. And if you're anything like me, you you read this chapter and you get to the end and you're wondering, why is this story in the Bible? Like, I understand we want to know that Sarah's passed away. We probably want to know how old she was when she passed away. But why does it necessarily matter where she was buried in the process in which Abraham went about actually getting the land? That's a great question. I'm glad you guys asked. (laughs) You see, the significance of the story lies in those details. There's true significance to the where and the how. And so to begin with the where, 
Where did he purchase the field? Where was the location? As we see in verse 17, Abraham purchased the field in Malchpelah, which is east of Mamre. And so for all you biblical geology scholars out there, that, that name might ring a bell to you. Because this is a special place for the Lord and a special place for Abraham. So if we look back, and you guys don't have to turn there, I'll read for you. But chapter 13 of Genesis, we see Lot and Abraham have acquired so many animals, so much wealth, that it comes a time where Abraham and Lot say, hey, we need to split ways so that we don't get our herds confused, we don't get frustrated with one another. And so Abraham lets Lot go first and choose the choicest of lands. And then Abraham has what's left. And Abraham's standing before his land with God. And in in Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also will be counted. Arise, walk the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And he built an altar to the Lord there. So we see through unfortunate means, through the, the death and burial of Sarah, Abram now legally owns a piece of the promised land. He owns a piece of the land that God said in chapter 13, I am going to give to you. This will all be yours. It's in this small purchase that it's the embodiment of hope in God's promises that one day in the future, this will all belong to Abraham and his descendants. He's receiving a piece of the promised land prior to total fulfillment. He's really embracing the now and not yet reality and mentality that we as Christians embrace today. And then the significance of the how. It's important to note that he bought it straight up outright. At that day and age, it would have been very typical to just lease the property. So you're leasing that burial site. But Abraham said, no, I'm not going to lease anything. I'm going to buy it right up. Because by buying it, there's no way they can come back and try to take that land from him because he established himself that this is the promised land that the Lord has promised me, and so therefore I will cling to it with all that I have. You see, even the act of overpaying shows his trust and hope in the Lord. That he's saying, God, I'm going I'm to even overpay for this land because I know you are the one that ultimately provides. You are the one that ultimately makes this come to fruition. The end of story number one. And then we have a rather stark transition as we move into chapter 24, uh, story number two, uh, which I'll title Operation Find a Wife for Isaac. You see, a few years have passed now since Sarah has passed away. And again, what is common in that day and age is that the dad of the son would say, I'm going to go find a wife for, for my son which I can be honest, I'm super glad that that does not still exist today. I love my dad, but I don't trust him picking a wife from me. And I love you. And so the time has come to find a wife for Isaac. And so Abraham takes his most trusted servant and tells him this. In verse 2, picking up there, he says, Put your hands under my thigh, 
that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. And again, small little side note, that put your hand under my thigh, uh, this oath um, is a very solemn and serious oath they would make. It's much more than just a simple handshake, but they're saying, like, we are this serious about it that we're going to grab the upper thigh, be really close and intimate with one another so that we can say, this is the lengths we'll go to honor this. And he says, to the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And then Abraham follows him in verse 6. He says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. So see to it that you do not take my son back to this land. So the two requirements of the oath is one, don't take a woman from the land of Canaan, and two, don't let Isaac go back there. So why not take a wife from the land of Canaan? Again, this goes back to what we have already seen in the book of Genesis. In chapter 9, after Noah and the flood and all that, uh, God actually curses Canaan. In chapter 9, verse 25, he says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be his brother. And then later on, he says, May may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So again, in Abraham's mind, there is a curse when it comes to Canaan. There is a curse when it comes to its inhabitants. And so therefore, Abraham wants nothing to do with these cursed people that have not been set apart like Abraham. And then the don't bring Isaac back is just simply this understanding that this is the promised land. God has brought us to the promised land, and we are not going to leave it. No matter what we do, no matter where we go, we're going to stay on this plot of land that the Lord has promised us. And Abraham knows that the Lord is going to faithfully provide. He's seen that time and time again. And in verse 7, he even says that the Lord will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. So Operation Find Isaac, a wife is in progress, and let's pick up in verse 10 um, and read the next chunk. Verse 10 says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the beginning of evening. That's the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to who I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for my servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my servant And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with the water jar on her shoulder. The young woman is very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran down to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water for my jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. This would have been very common courtesy of the day. Yet when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, 
I will draw water for your camels also, until they are finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Okay, let's pause a moment. As you can probably guess, this act of watering the camels would have been super, super rare at that time of day. We have to realize that Abraham's servant had just been traveling for about a two-weeks journey. I mean, a lot of scholars say it's going to be around 500 miles that were traveled. I mean, we know camels are huge carriers of water. So they would have got there very, very thirsty. And so scholars say that up to 200 gallons of water Rebecca would have drawn for these camels. So we're talking hours of work put into giving these camels the water. You see, with all this heat this year, uh, me and my wife, we finally caved in, and we ended up buying a cooling system. But I was like, I don't want to buy a huge electric drainer, so we bought an evaporative cooler to cool down our house. The one pain with an evaporative cooler, though, is you have to dump water into the base of it, which, again, is this jug that gives the air the coolness you need. Our tank, I think, only holds about 10 gallons, and so part of my job every day is to be the one to fill up that tank of water. And I can tell you, I stand right next to the sink with a bucket and dump it in, and I get super tired and annoyed, and it's only 10 gallons. (laughs) So you can only imagine the work and effort that this woman went to, to walk back and forth from the spring to the trough time and time again for a man that she doesn't even know. Like, I'm doing the water cooling system for myself because I know I benefit from it. But this just goes to show the character of this woman that we want to see, Rebecca. She's a woman of character, a woman of service. And this story is to highlight that. And so back to the story, verse 22. So when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and said, please let me know whose daughter you are. And is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah. She was born in the whore. And she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. So the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Let's pause once again. It's important for us to note the way the narrator tells us this story. You see, we as the reader are given this woman's identity prior to the servant. We know right off the bat that this is the woman that the servant has been looking for. This, she fits. She checks all the boxes that the servant has. And we know all this prior to the servant. It's not till after she actually offers up, hey, let me feed your, or let me water your camels, that he actually finds out, hey, this is the woman I've been looking for. So, so why no suspense for the reader? Why are we not brought in on this journey as well of wondering, is she going to be the one or not? You see, the author does this intentionally to shift our focus from the question of who is this girl to who was the one that actually made this come to pass. And that's the Lord. 
You see, the Lord answering the servant's prayer, that's where the focus becomes. And we even see that in verse 15 where he says, before he had finished speaking, it just drives home the point that the God of the universe is the one that's acting in this situation. He's the one saying, that's the girl. She's going to come right to you. I'm going to provide all that you need. You see, we see firsthand the faithfulness of God towards his people. He is the acting agent in the story. He is the one that brings his promises to pass. And it's important to also note the servant's response to this Lord's provision. Immediately, as soon as he finds out that God provided him to her, he bows down and worships the Lord. So now we pick up the story, and the servant follows Rebecca to her house and meets meets the potential family, his family-to-be. And he's warmly welcomed into Rebecca's family and offers food. Yet prior to taking food, he says, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And then for the next 15 verses, which we're not going to read, it's simply a retelling of the story we just read. It's almost a verbatim retelling of the experience we just had of what he got told from Abraham and the well and the camels and who she was. And like most repetitions in the Bible, there's a significance to why this story is repeated. It's not just simply to say, oh, you might have forgot what you read two seconds ago, so I'm just going to retell you. But no, there's significance in that. And it's drawing out the main point that the author is trying to make. That again, God was the one who acted. He was the one who prepared the way. It's that reiteration of he faithfully sent his angel ahead and led the servant to Rebekah. You see, God is faithful to his promises. So we've already seen the author and the servant acknowledge that these events are the work of the Lord. But then we go on and we see that Laban and Bethel acknowledge also that this is the work of the Lord. In verses 50 through 51, uh, they respond and they say, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So now we've got three, four different people reiterating this fact. God is the one who has made this come to pass. And we even see the blessing that Rebekah receives is similar to the blessing that God gives Abraham and his descendants. We see in verse 60 that Rebekah's blessing ends with, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. And Abraham, in chapter 22, verse 17, his blessing ended with, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And there, it's just another way of seeing how purposeful the Lord is and choosing a wife for Isaac, how purposeful he is in making his promises come to fruition. He cares about the big details and the minute, small details of life. And if you're still left wondering, oh, is this from the Lord or not? Then Rebecca's response to being asked to leave the very next day drives home this point. Because in verse 58, she simply responds, I will go. It would have been typical in that day and age to spend a week or two preparing to actually leave and to making sure this man is who he says he is. Yet we see Rebecca willingly leave her whole family and all that she's ever known to travel 500 miles to meet a man she's never met 
and to become his wife. We see her simple response reveals her trust and faith in the God of Abraham. So once again in the story, it's just the repetition of the faithfulness of God. We see it as readers in this story, and we experience it through the characters and through what they have to say. And so the very next day, Abraham's servant, Rebecca, and the rest of the traveling party, they head out. And they make this 500-mile journey back to where Isaac is. And this story ends with this. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his wife, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The operation was a success. Abraham, through God, sent out his servant. And we see God faithfully provide Rebecca for Isaac. The end of story number two. And story number three, I mean, in a sense, is more like two obituaries uh, than it really is a story. You see, chapter 25 is really the bookends of the life of Abraham. We are closing the chapter of Abraham and looking forward to the passing of the baton to Isaac and Rebekah and the family to come through them. This truly is a transition chapter as Abraham and Ishmael exit the narrative of Genesis. And so verses 1 through 11 really focus on Abraham's life and eventual death. As we see in those first few verses, Abraham took another wife named Keturah, and she had six sons with her. What's important, though, to note, there's a few things important to note in this section. I mean, the first is in verse 5, where it simply says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Again, we've just seen this story. If he now has multiple sons, he has Abraham, I mean, he has Isaac, he has Ishmael, and then he has these six other sons. Yet Abraham intentionally gave all that he had to Isaac. He gave gifts to the other sons, but his inheritance, his blessing, was to Isaac because he was the son of promise. Again, we see Abraham acting on faith, saying, I believe that God is who he says he is. And he told me this of my son Isaac, and so I'm going to give him everything that I have. He even has his other sons leave the land. He says they head east so that Isaac can have the promised land. And second, we see that Abraham is buried with his wife in the promised land. It's just the beautiful fruition of it all, saying, hey, I'm going to give you this land. In chapter 13, we see that. And what, 12 chapters later, Abraham is buried in the land that God said, I'm going to give you. And lastly, the section ends with the statement in verse 11 of God blessed Isaac, his son. Once again, God is the one doing the acting. And this story seems a little similar to that of our first story of seeing Abraham purchase the land because it's this idea of the now and not yet. That Isaac has received this blessing. He's received all that Abraham has but there's still so much more to come. There's still so much more to look forward to. It's a small glimpse of what is to come. And the last of our text today ends with Ishmael's death. And similar to Abraham, we're provided with a genealogy of Ishmael's descendants. 
And again, we might be wondering, why give us all this information? It goes back to what we've already been reading, what we've already seen in Genesis thus far. In the naming of his 12 sons and giving them the actual title of the 12 princes, we catch on to that significance that's put in another chapter in the Bible that we've read already. You see, in chapter 17 of Genesis, God is speaking to Abraham once again, and he's giving blessings for Isaac, and he gives a specific blessing to Ishmael. He says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. Once again, God is paving the way to make this promise come to fruition. Ishmael has these 12 sons, these princes, that will one day truly be a great nation. And thus concludes our three stories. And so you're probably wondering, what do these stories have to do with me today? What is Abraham receiving some of the promised land? Isaac receiving a wife, God continuing his covenant with Isaac, Ishmael's death and descendants becoming a great nation. What does that mean for us today? You see, if we truly believe the words in Hebrews that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then this has everything to do with us. For if God was true and faithful to his promises to Abraham and his descendants, And God is true and faithful to his promises to us, to his children this very day and the days to come. You see, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. Though we probably won't receive a promise in the same method or grandness that Abraham did of being told that we are going to be the father of a great nation, we as believers, all believers, have been given promises by the Lord. And here are just a few of the amazing promises that God has blessed all believers with. He promises to give us wisdom if we ask. We see that in James chapter 1, verse 5. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says he provides a way out of temptation. In Hebrews 13, he promises to never leave us or forsake us. In Philippians 1, he promises to finish the good work that has begun in us. And lastly, in Revelation 22, the very end, he promises that he's going to come back. Yet as we know, the ultimate promise and fulfillment that we see throughout all the scripture comes through the man and God, Jesus Christ. You see, he was the promised seed of Abraham who crushed Satan's head. He was the descendant of Abraham through whom every nation on earth would be blessed. He was the Passover lamb who was slain to protect God's people from the angel of death. He was the fulfillment of the law, perfectly obeying not only the Ten Commandments, but the 613 commandments from the day he was born. He ushered in a new covenant in his blood, a covenant written on the heart of his people and marked by his forgiveness of our sins. You see, he is the son of God who lived and loved us to the point of death 
willingly dying on the cross so that we could be made right with God because we had to have our sins atoned for some way. That we may be children of God. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 states, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see, we cling to Christ. Because if we cling to Christ, we can cling to the promises of God, promises that we know either are fulfilled or will be fulfilled. So knowing that all the promises of God will find their yes in Christ, how do we respond? How do we respond to these promises? And that's where our stories help to give some of that insight. You see, we've seen in the deaths of Sarah and Abraham and Ishmael, we see this idea of this partial fulfillment of promises. This idea of, hey, I'm giving you a piece of the land. Not all of it, but I'm giving you a piece I'm giving you some of the blessing that is more to come. Or for Ishmael, I'm giving you these 12 sons, these princes, that not currently, but eventually will be a great nation. You see, we see Abraham act in faith by purchasing this lot in the land of Canaan. We see him acting in faith by passing down his inheritance and blessing Isaac above all of his other sons. Abraham was a faithful participator and the promises of God. In this story, they receive a sliver of their inheritance, and they act in faith, saying, I believe God is who he says he is, and I believe what he says will come to pass will come to pass, to complete fulfillment. And this is the life of the Christian. This is the life we embrace. We are living in the now, but not yet. We cling to the mark of the inheritance that we have, but then is yet to come. We Christians enjoy the now of atonement, the remission of sins, the adoption as children, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yet there's a sense that we will not see these realities in totality until the day that we actually come face to face with Christ. In 1 John, we read, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will have not yet what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. See, the life of a believer is we are saved, but we know we are being saved, and one day our creator will come back. He will return. The words of Genesis 22 are true. And so we sit in anticipation and excitement and wait. Yeah, how do we cling to the hope in God? How do we respond? We respond just like Abraham did, acting in faith, acting in the hope that the God of the universe is who he says he is. We put our hope in the Lord and act in light of those promises. If we daily lived in the reality that God was actually making a good work in us, like he says in Philippians 1, how different would our life look? If we were pursuing daily being like, God's making a good work in me today. God's making a good work in me tomorrow. How would that change our mindset? 
when we get in strife with our spouse or we get frustrated at work or we feel like we're just having a bad day and nothing's going right, realizing that the God of the universe said, I'm gonna make a good work in you until completion. And so we know that daily he's making good works in us. It's that idea of that song, he makes beautiful things or all things new, all things beautiful. That's what he's doing to us. Or what if we held on to the fact that Jesus is coming back? That the grave didn't hold him down, but that three days later he rose, he ascended, and one day he will come back and restore this earth to its rightful place. Will that change the way we act? Will that change the way we interact with our neighbors or our coworkers? Realizing that Jesus is coming back, what do we have to fear? We can be bold knowing that the fulfillment will come. And we want everybody brought into that process. We want everybody embracing that truth. You see, there's so much hope that rests in the life of the Christian, in the now, but not yet. Because we know that with Christ, all promises are through him. And if Christ is victorious, we step into that victory with him. We step into that truth with him. And then in verse, or in verse chapter 24, we see the servant show us his proper response to actually seeing a promise fulfilled. Of seeing Abraham say, hey, God's promised me this, this, this wife for Isaac because we have to have a wife to continue this offspring, to continue this blessing, this covenant that God has made with me. And so all of chapter 24 happens, and finally the servant meets the woman. And what is his response? He bowed down and worshiped. Verse 27 of chapter 24 says, The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love towards his servant. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. So my question for us, are we living worshipful lives? Are we even reflecting and looking at the promises that God has given us? Are we praising God for the wisdom that he's given us? That he says, if you ask, I will give you. Do we worship God for helping him, helping us fight temptation and be victorious over that? Or do we completely forget that God is part of the picture? Do we completely forget that God has given us these promises? See, that's what I love about this text that we read today, is as we read this story, we have to go back to other parts of Genesis to see that promise stated, to seeing it come to fruition. So are are we people that look back to the past to see where has God blessed us as we look towards the future as we look ahead to what is to come? Do we rejoice when we feel God's presence, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us? Are we clinging to these truths? And I can tell you over the last seven weeks, uh, this idea of God not leaving or forsaking you has been something that has really been part of my life. Um, As a lot of you guys know, about seven seven weeks ago today, uh, little Miss Ivy Mae, my daughter, was born. Um, And right off the bat, beautiful baby, um, but had trouble breathing. 
and it's not fun to watch a baby look like they're hyperventilating at two minutes old. And what transpired was five hours of sitting around and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, having her hooked up to tubes, having tubes put down her throat before we finally got sent to Randall's in Portland and spent a week there just watching our little baby, again, one day old, two days old, have a breathing tube down her nose and a trach down her throat. Um, and it was heavy and it was hard. But, but I say all that to say that in the midst of all of that, the promise of I will never leave or forsake you gave me so much hope and comfort clinging to the promise of God. And though I wasn't positive my daughter was going to be all right, I knew that I would be all right because the Lord's not going to leave me and forsake me. And we saw in the story, even through death and through marriage, God is there. God is present. And there were multiple days that I drove into the hospital uh, just in tears, being thankful to God for blessing me with this baby, for blessing me with this mentality that I can trust you. And then honestly, being so thankful for all the people that God put in my life that are part of this blessing, that are part of this idea of God never leaving or forsaking you. Because God uses us, uses his people to make his promises come to pass sometimes. God even used Abraham in this story and the servant to be human agents for his goal, for his faithfulness. You see, the hope of today is that we can look to the God of the universe and realize he is faithful to every single promise he's ever given in Scripture. And if we can cling to that, it changes the way we go through each day. It changes our lives to be one of worship and submission as we see these promises unfold in our lives. Yet it also gives us a hope to act in faith, knowing that if I act on the promises of God, I know they will come to fruition. And they might not come to fruition in my lifetime, but I know if all promises are answered yes through Christ, then we can hold on to every promise given. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. But we thank you that you are a righteous God. And Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that what you say will come to pass. Lord, your scripture is full of promises in the Old Testament that we see fulfilled through your son, Jesus, in the New Testament. Lord, we've experienced your promises come to fruition in our own lives. And God, may we be people that reflect upon that. May we be people that look back to your blessing and to your promises and then look to the future, Lord, knowing that we live in the reality of the here, but not yet. Knowing that we cling to the hope of the coming glory as your son returns. God, may we be people of promise, resting in that reality that your promises do come to pass. In your name, amen. Uh, today, uh, for communion, we're going to be doing it all together.
Uh, so during this first song, uh, if you guys would all, we have two in the front and two in the back. Um, if you guys will grab your um, cup and bread, uh, this is a meal for believers as we celebrate.